Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 339 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast, presented by Overdrive. This is just Adam today for both the intro and the interview part of our episode. Uh, today is an interview I did with Brian J. Jones, who longtime listeners of the podcast will know that I have been circling trying to get him on the podcast for a while now. Uh, when we first started this whole professional book nerds experiment, little fun science project. Uh, I was reading Brian J. Jones' biography of Jim Henson, and of course I'm obsessed with the Muppets, and I remember thinking to myself way back then, I need to find a way to talk to this guy at some point. Uh, Then he wrote the Dr. Seuss biography called Becoming Dr. Seuss, which is out now, and I thought, well, I definitely need to talk to him now because those are the two defining cultural touch points of my uh, my childhood and continue to be so my basically my key nerd points really are Seuss and the Muppets um, and talking to him 100% lived up to my expectations uh, we got dorky about Seuss we got dorky about the Muppets about Jim Henson about Star Wars uh, and just about anything else you could imagine so it's a whole lot of fun uh, I have a feeling we'll be having him back on to talk comics and just a slew of other things, uh, because he's, yeah, he's right up there with my, my favorite people that I've ever talked to before. Did a little bit of a different nerd nine with him, where I asked a bunch of uh, Muppety Seuss type questions with him, which a little bit different than normal, but felt apropos. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always go to professionalbooknerds.com. You can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at probooknerds. Uh, if you missed our last episode, it was Jill and I waxing poetic on the Game of Thrones series finale, uh, sharing our thoughts, and then also some book recommendations um, that had nothing to do with Game of Thrones, but just some books that we've been reading recently that we think you'll enjoy. So if you're all caught up on Game of Thrones, be sure to check that out as well. Um, I think that's just about everything. Before I go, though, just want to do a quick shout out to our podcast channel, the Evergreen Podcasts. Uh, really great stuff on there. You can always check out, uh, go to ever, evergreenpodcast.com and you'll get some really cool other shows that, uh, if you're a nerd and you're listening to this, so you just might be, I think you'll like their stuff as well. Also, every time I ask, usually one or two people do this. So I'm just going to ask again, cause we really appreciate it. If you haven't done so, if you wouldn't mind going to iTunes and giving us a five-star rating and just a real quick one sentence review of what you like about the show really helps people find us a little bit more easily. And it makes us smile. So, hey, you know, hopefully you enjoy making us smile as much as we make you smile or enjoy making you smile, rather. Okay, that's enough rambling. I'm going to let you guys get to the episode. I hope you guys enjoy this interview with Brian J. Jones on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Adam again, and I am beyond excited to be joined by Brian J. Jones, who is the award-winning and acclaimed biographer who has written the definitive books about the lives of Washington Irving, George Lucas, and Jim Henson, which is literally the best biography I have personally ever read. His latest biography, Becoming Dr. Seuss, is now available, and with its release, I told Brian before we started recording, he's basically covered uh, my entire childhood with all the people that I adored growing up and still do. So I've literally been waiting to chat with Brian about these books since before this podcast existed, and now I get that chance. So Brian, thank you for joining me today. 
Hey, Adam, I am so happy to talk to you, too. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So this is going to sound a little silly because of the types of works that you do, but we always like to start our podcast by giving the author a chance to introduce your book to people. So with that in mind, the floor is yours. Can you kind of introduce our listeners to Becoming Dr. Seuss? Sure. Um, one of the things that I hope people will love about this book is, uh, you know, if you're like me, well, it, basically if you're like anybody over the age of probably even 70, <laughs> um, we all came to Dr. Seuss when he was already fully formed. Um, and what I found so interesting about Ted Geisel is that it took him quite a while to actually arrive at the Dr. Seuss that we all sort of know and love. And a lot of the books that we all came to actually came kind of later in his career. He didn't really have a big hit uh, until Cat in the Hat, and he was already 50 years old. So what I find really interesting about his story is watching him sort of go through these, uh, what I broke down into what I hope are three phases of his career that make sense and watching him sort of rising up through um, an advertising man and, you know, getting into kids' books because there was money left on the table more than this compelling need to tell great stories and then getting into the middle phase of his career where he goes through uh, the Army and learns uh, from Frank Capra, who's his commanding officer in the Sigma Corps, about storyboarding and how to tell a story that moves quickly and isn't boring and uh, how he becomes almost sort of a, um, a, um, a progressive uh, in thoughts through, you know, dealing with Capra and dealing with a, a newspaper that he worked with called PM in New York that had a lot of progressive thought, and he was taking on Hitler and editorial cartoons. And so you can sort of see him moving through these different phases in his career before he, you know, lands on Cat in the Hat, and that's really sort of his blockbuster. Until then, he couldn't really afford to do books full-time. He was doing advertising on the side up through 1956. Um, so one of the things I really love about his story, and I hope people find interesting, is watching him literally becoming Dr. Seuss and not erupting fully formed from the head of Zeus, as so many of us uh, <laughs> like to think of him. He was always, you know, the, the dentist office book for us. He was always kind of just there for us. Uh, and actually really took him a while to get there. And then, of course, once he got there, he's been in the public imagination ever, you know, since 1956, actually. So he's been around a long time. I'm so glad that that's kind of where you chose to start because there really were so there was so much of his life that people definitely don't know about and and you mentioned you know Cat in the Hat being his first hit that was not his his first book you know and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street was was the first one that that came out and like you said it, the first couple of books really didn't I mean they sold okay but. You know, people think of, you know, Horton and these all these characters that you know so well. And, like, you know, Horton Hatches an Egg was one of those first books. And it, it was not something that, you know, people were universally buying all around, you know, the world. He's definitely someone who we really only know about this image of Dr. Seuss that we all have in our minds. But in reality, and I mean, a lot of this has to do with, and you talk about this in the book, about how he openly would make up stories about his own life. Um, but there's a lot of Dr. Seuss that isn't really the Dr. Seuss that people in general really have any idea about. Right, yeah, he was always sort of happy to let these, you know, 
myths evolve, you know, revolve around him, and one of his really great quotes is, and they're usually something that I unfortunately started, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> so a lot of stories get repeated, that he sort of started just as almost as a throwaway joke. But yeah, up until Cat in the Hat, he only had 11 books. Now, he ended up in his lifetime writing, I believe, 45, so it goes to show you that after he got to Cat in the Hat in 1957, he sort of had you know jet fuel in his veins at that point. And, and that part of his career is where, um, you know, I, I didn't really talk about this yet, and we can get into this, mm -hmm. but that's the point in his career when he starts doing books that have um, a, a specific and definite pedagogy behind them. They have vocabulary lists and things that educators, you know, would really wrap their arms around. And so he starts the beginner's book, the beginner book imprint, saying, you know, we're going to use these approved vocabulary words, and we're going to write books that kids want to read. Um, and make them fun. And so, you know, one of the reasons we consider him sort of the father of, you know, literacy for kids is because he had this pedagogy behind it, and he was writing really fun books, and that's the point in his career when he starts writing, you know, Fox and Socks and Green Eggs and Hand and, you know, the hand, all these really fun books that we know that have these smaller vocabularies all came out of his desire to tell, you know, write fun books for kids that had this pedagogy behind him. So that's, you know, that's another part of becoming Dr. Seuss is this real um, you know, willingness and this real aggressive wanting to do good and write good books for kids. And that's one of the things that I don't know he always necessarily gets enough credit about or that people even know. A, a great book like, you know, Go Dog Go and Are You My Mother are beginner books that he probably edited himself and put out there, you know, helping these other writers uh, adhere to this sort of rigid pedagogy, but writing really fun books. He always told them, don't you write down to kids. They're the toughest audience out there. They'll see you coming a mile away. You know, really took the work seriously and took kids seriously. Something that I have always really appreciated about Dr. Seuss and, and where he he came from as a, a creator, you know, as you mentioned, when people read the first, you know, 150, 200 pages of this book, they're going to realize like you said, he started as an ad man and he was doing, you know, all of these advertisements and these these huge campaigns that he was really well known for. And so by the time he's starting writing these books, uh, he and he's doing this political commentary and he's already very well known and very successful. And so it would have been really easy for him to simply stick to his guns and be the exact person that he was early on in his life without changing. But something that I really appreciated about him is... Uh, you know, people will read in the beginning of this book, there's some problematic stuff that he, he says and some caricatures that he draws, which people can write off as sort of a situation of the time that he was in. But he really seems to, especially as the as United States is kind of getting into World War II, he, he seems to be really willing to listen to other people's opinions and kind of change his thoughts. And I, and I think that really helps shape it what the stories that he would create later on in life were, but it was really, it's really interesting where someone, he very easily could have been set in his ways and he, he wasn't, he was willing to, to read the news and he was very well informed and he understood other people's opinions. And I just think that's really rare for people to see, especially with someone as wildly successful as he was. Right. I mean, I, I think World War II was formative for him uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, he, he started off before the war. He really had uh, Charles Lindbergh's number. Yeah. Like, he did not like Lindbergh and his America First talk and his isolationism and really goes after Lindbergh pretty hard on that. And, even, and what makes him even matter is that Lindbergh is an open anti-Semite uh, and, you know, really takes Lindbergh down. And once he takes Lindbergh down, then he goes after Hitler, and he draws these really 
fantastic and fantastically horrifying um, cartoons in, involving Hitler and, you know, is very willing to call him out for these, you know, humanitarian atrocities and has these terrifying cartoons of, you know, bodies hanging from trees dead and as Hitler standing in a field singing. I mean, really, you know, progressive advanced stuff. Um, but yeah, he and but he's not always perfect. You know, he he really sort of bought into the um, you know the incarceration of Japanese Americans um, at that time. It, it's not a good look for him, and he really should have known better. Uh, he was a German American in World War One, and you know was was haunted and told these stories for the rest of his life of kids throwing rocks at him and saying "kill the Kaiser." You know, he had experienced firsthand that, you know, discrimination that was just based on the fact that he had come from the country we were war with, he should have really known better with the Japanese uh, and with Japanese Americans. But I, but I think once he started working for PM Magazine and came under the influence of its editor, um, Ingersoll, mm-hmm. who was a real progressive and, and, you know, and really kind of got it and, you know, wrote these very thoughtful opinions and editorials about, you know, the, the Jewish people and about the Japanese people and how, you know, the Japanese people needed to be, even though we were at war, but they were still people. I mean, that's, those are the kind of messages that I think really resonated with him, and he really, I think, thought about it after that. And I don't think you can be somebody who is, you know, he definitely was never anti-Semitic, but I think, you know, some of his problematic cartoons you see from the 1920s about African Americans and so on. I, I don't think you can be the person who's doing the sneeches later in his career <laughs> without having evolved away from that position. Uh, now, now your mileage may vary. There were people that will argue to death about that, and I and I get it. Um, I think he's evolving, and I think he'd also seen. You know, he, he was from he was German, and he'd been to Germany before the war, and saw the effect of Nazi propaganda on children, and it scared the hell out of him. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he really knew. You know, we've got to do some work making sure our kids know you know, about how to behave and that we're good people and so on. So he's really, you know, really got these pro- sort of progressive ideals he's working with and trying to articulate. And I think it comes largely more even from that PM newspaper experience and under the under the stewardship of the, his editor there. I think also it's uh, something that people in this day and age can can relate to with him with the way that with like with social media, people have these can have these massive followings, and maybe they don't realize the effect they have. It seemed like he, when he was doing his political cartoons and everything, it seemed like he had an appreciation for the effect and the amount of re- the amount of reach he had. Like I feel like he certainly took not only did he take his job seriously to you know in an effort to you know make money and be successful and everything, but I, I think all the ad campaigns that he was running that became like national phenomenons and you have you know this Seuss Navy which you get into in in the book and I feel like he was definitely someone who appreciated how many people he could affect with his message and I think that probably helped him make sure that he was really specific about the message he was sharing. Yeah you know it's hard to tell you don't always know if he's putting that much thought into it and even talks about when you're doing the editorial cartoons you know, you pick up the newspaper in the morning, and, he, and remember, he's in California at the time, so New York's already three hours ahead. <laughs> you know, you get the morning newspaper, and you read it, and you dash off a cartoon and get it airmailed to New York before they close at 5. So, you know, a lot of – he even talks about at some point how some of it's intemperate and some it's not always smart. Uh-huh. Uh, and the author says, but I would do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but, but, I, but you're right. I think he did appreciate, uh, you know, the name recognition he had, at, even as an admin. Stan and Jan Berenstain talk about how when they first met him, they knew him more for his advertising work than for his kids' books. Right. So, you know, people saw that signature. They knew who he was. 
Um, and but but you know, I, so I think he I think he took his job uh, his responsibility seriously. Um, but I there there are times <clears throat> that I think he didn't always necessarily have time to think about what he was doing. He did definitely have some people that he wanted to go after. You know, he went after a number of U.S. senators again <laughs> for being terribly racist and anti-Semitic. Yeah. And, you know, and, and really took a lot of them down. But one of the stories I love is one of the senators he went after. Um, then wrote to him and said, hey, can I have the cartoon where yeah. you, you know, turn me into a horse's ass? I would really like that. So, you know, I mean, people got it. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, how much of his story and, like, his his life were you familiar with before you made the decision to really take a deep dive and write this biography? Uh, none at all, actually. None at all. Uh, it was all, you know, learning for me. Because, again, I, I knew, you know, <laughs> again, Dr. Seuss was already fully formed by the time I came on to him. I didn't know his entire backstory. I, you know, I knew his books. Um, and I didn't learn to read with Dr. Seuss, so I wasn't so much in, like, the the beginner books. But for me, I, like, I love uh, Bartholomew Cubbins mm-hmm. and the 500 Hats and, you know, some of his earlier stuff when he was still kind of playing with the form and playing with conceits of fairy tales and things like that before he got to the beginner book phase where he's sort of head down, we're going to follow this pedagogy and it's going to be a little rigorous and sometimes hard to work with. So I came to him more through through those books than the beginner books because, I, again, I, I learned how to read from comic books, not from Dr. Seuss. <laughs> uh, so I really like some of those, what, what he always called the big books, but those big ones from very early in his career were the ones I really like. So what made you want to do this profile on him i'm I'm curious is it just kind of like following with with the whole jim henson thing like okay well this is another big kind of pop culture phenomenon type of a person what was it that made you no you're you're, actually you're you're onto it and there's you know i wish there was science behind it but there's not and and (laughs) the next subject is the conversation that biographers hate to have um, for a number of reasons. One, because half the time we don't know, and the second, uh, for another reason, a lot of times we might have one in mind, and we're afraid if we say it out loud, we'll jinx it, and we won't get to do it, or we'll find out someone else is doing it. Uh-huh. And we're all these creatures of, you know, superstition. Um, but this was this was one I was having a long conversation with my editor and with my agent. You know, we were talking about, you know, who the, the issue, the problem that I have, um, and it's a great problem to have, is you know, a subject like Jim Henson. When you get done with that book. Um, you kind of want to try to find another subject that feels worthy of uh-huh. him, if that makes sense. Um, and then, so going from Jim to George Lucas actually made a lot of sense, especially because, like, I had that, there's that great picture of he, he and George Lucas working together yeah. on Labyrinth. You're like, well, come on, why wouldn't, you know, there, that was, that, that's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> um, but then once I got done with George Lucas, you're trying again to figure out, like, what's another topic that's kind of worthy of that and that feels, you know, that it's in sort of the same, you know, pop icons are, and cultural icons are tough because, you know, you, you don't always know has somebody already done it, or a lot of times you can't even think of them, or somebody throws something out that you're just not interested in. You know, I'd have a lot of people who always go, oh, you know who's great? This actor that I love. And I'm like, I, I don't want to spend, you know, three years with that person, though. <laughs> um, and that's one of the things you really, and that's one of the things you really have to think of as a biographer or a historian is, you know, you're going to you're gonna deep drill into this person's life for three years. Can you stand it? You know, I have a, a number of colleagues who write biographies of Richard Nixon, and, you know, I'm like, how do you keep him out of your head? Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they talk about having to compartmentalize. Um, I'm not sophisticated or smart enough, I guess, to compartmentalize. I I really live with that person. Um, so, you know, it was one of those that when we came upon it, we were kind of throwing names around, and when we said Dr. Seuss, you know, that was a moment that I think even all three of us went, ah, ha, ha, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, and that's kind of you know. But as somebody said, that's that, that's my shelf, which I didn't realize I had a shelf until then. <laughs> um, but that made a lot of sense. Um, and so you know, I, I just started poking around and looking and and finding out what was available and where his papers were held. And, and you know, because and the other issue you've got with him is he died, you know, in nineteen ninety two, mm-hmm. um, at in his eighties. So there aren't a lot of contemporaries, you know, the Berenstains aren't around, and, you know, a lot of the people he worked with aren't around anymore. Fortunately, Mike Frith, um, who was Jim Henson's creative director, who I knew from Jim Henson, was actually an editor for him when he was 20, when Michael was 20 years old and worked at Random House. So, you know, I, I knew Michael, so I could talk with Michael. And so, you know, so that, that, that helped me find some more people to talk with. But uh, you do have the issue of time when it's a subject like that, even. That, that there's a lot of people that aren't around anymore. That's actually, you made it, make a really good point, because with, you know, with Jim Henson, there's obviously, there's his family, and he had children, and um, there's people you could interact with and get information from and then find. And, and died relatively young. You know, yeah. he died in, at 53, 20 years ago, so still relatively young. And, and so, kind of... Com- comparing the two when it comes to doing you know the research process you know, is it you know did you find it easier to do research and confirm facts when dealing with Jim Henson because you had those first person accounts or was it maybe a little bit more maybe a little bit easier to do th- this type of thing with Dr. Seuss because everything that you were referring to was you know written down and so you knew it was kind of from his his mouth, so to speak. Well, he's harder because, again, you can't, he's an unreliable narrator. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, playing a, lot of, playing a lot of the same stories over and over again. And there were actually some, you know, I, there was one story, which I can't recall off the top of my head, that was in the book through almost the final draft, and my editor just kept underlining it. And he was like, I'm not sure I believe this. <laughs> and so I think, I think finally we, we, we took it out. And it wasn't, you know, it was, it was funny. It wasn't, it wasn't a pivotal story, but it was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And, and my editor just kept saying, I'm really not sure I believe this. So we, we removed that. Um, but, you know, he, he can be an unreliable narrator. He loves to be the hero of his own story, don't we all? Um, and if, and that being the hero means he falls on his face to make it funnier, he's even willing to do that. So, you know, so you've got to watch out for him in there. What you, what, what the real challenge with him was is to go back and, uh, you know, thank God for archival tools like newspapers.com and things where you can just, you know, rifle through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of newspaper articles very quickly is, you know, finding a lot of interviews he'd done and just start laying stories down next to each other and you know, finding out where do they line up, where do they not, um, you know, doing research on, you know, could he have been at this place at this time, you know, trying to figure out where he was, what he was doing. So uh, so a lot of it's detective work, and a lot of times it's trying to check him against himself because, again, when you don't have other people to go to um, to confirm it, um, you know, it, it's – sometimes hard and i i talked with bob bernstein who was uh the president of random house and adored him uh-huh. but bob is 96 96 years old i think and uh you know his answer and it's a great answer when you're 96 and god bless him was you know i don't remember <laughs> so so it was kind of hard a lot of times to to get people to you know i'd say he told this story did that happen and you know chris i talked with chris surf who was bennett surf the publisher of random house right. his son and what and what chris told me a lot of times he's like you know i i was a kid you know I, I wasn't around i didn't hear them laughing around the dinner table and i didn't you know i said you didn't you didn't sit at the top of the steps when there was a party going on and try to overhear the adult conversation like my brother and i was, he's like you know I, I really didn't so you know so there were sometimes you come up with these vapor trails as you're trying to find all the people still standing around 
uh, and get at some of this. Uh, sometimes you find it, sometimes you don't. But, uh, but the main thing, again, you have to do with him is compare his stories constantly and find out, you know, what's the, what's the through line of truth you believe to be in there. Um, you know, his papers, uh, there's, you know, there's some letters, but he doesn't have this big, vast correspondence, or at least not that I was permitted to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unlike, you know, Jim, who was running his own business, um, Jim Henson, um, and it's, you know, there's a lot of handwritten documents of him and some notes and things like that. There wasn't really a lot of that on the business side of it. Um, you would find some things a lot of times where he, uh, it was really fun to look through rough drafts of things and, you know, find his notes that he was writing when they were making the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T. You know, so you find things like that where you get them, you know, having this dialogue with themselves. And that, those are the moments that are really, really fun. I have to imagine there are things that you uncovered that, like, just totally blew your mind like one of the things and this isn't a, a giveaway to the book at all it's just a, a small little anecdote but there is a, a part when dr seuss before he was dr seuss when he was you know ted geisel and he was uh he's kind of touring around uh kind of gallivanting around europe and he's spending a lot of time in in france and he is going to this place to try and write and it's basically a, a watering hole a, a pub type of a place and while he's there as a, a student and obviously a student who would become Dr. Seuss, Ernest Hemingway is there writing. And like just reading that to me, right. having these two colossals of, 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 you know, the literary world being in the same place at the same time, like that just sort of blew my mind. But was there something for you when you were doing this process, whether it was like a piece of art or a story that you uncovered, like, was there something that took you aback as like the most sort of, incredible thing that that existed that you didn't know about well there's you know there's moments first of all i I love the hemingway moment and the other thing i love about it and this isn't giving away too much either i hope is that he's too scared to talk to him right (laughs) you know he's he's one of these americans like and in his notes he's like you know so hoity-toity about seeing all these famous writers and as soon as he finally sees one in person he's terrified yeah (laughs) Um, which you know is kind of the way we all are when we're 24 years old. But, uh, you know, he's trying to be like this world-weary American, and then all of a sudden he can't talk to the great American writer. Um, I was really fascinated by uh, one of my favorite periods of his work is, is actually a lot of the stuff he's doing at Dartmouth in, mm-hmm. in the college magazines, and, and where he's, um, this is going to sound like quite, not quite the right, but like he's sort of fumbling around for, for the pseudonym. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of mythology yeah. around him adopting that pseudonym, and that was one of the things, that's one of the things I love to do in these, these books is sort, of, is sort of myth bust, and you, you know, I got to do it with Jim Henson and things like, you know, he died because he, you know, was Christian science and didn't go to the hospital, which we know now is not true. Right. But, you know, so I, I love sort of taking those myths and, and digging into them and trying to find the truth. And Dr. Seuss, talking about adopting that name, is, you know, he's a great storyteller, and he's got great stories which change over time. So he talks about, you know, taking the name Dr. Seuss because he didn't get his doctorate when he was in Oxford and he, you know, owed it to his father. And uh, so so he's always kind of changing the story. But if you go back and actually look at the old cartoons and take his narration, you know, his sort of voiceover Mm -hmm. out of it, you can actually see him coming to it mm-hmm. and playing around with different pseudonyms and so on. And then, does, you know, one of, one of the famous myths is that he hid behind a pseudonym because he was caught drinking on campus during Prohibition, which is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things I love about him is he's the son of brewers and you're never, he's got, you know, alcohol in his blood. You're <laughs> never going to get him to stop drinking. 
and uh, gets caught, you know, gets caught drinking on campus. And the myth that he likes to perpetuate is, well, they told me that I couldn't contribute to the to the magazine anymore, <clears throat> and I'd been editor, so I started submitting under pseudonym to fool them. Mm-hmm. Um, great story. The timing doesn't line up on it. Uh, the pseudonyms were already in the paper, and the paper was at press before he got caught drinking. So, so that it, it was close. Uh, but doesn't quite line up. So, you know, it's, it, it's those detective moments like that that are kind of fun, and you're like, well, I hope people aren't too disappointed that we're going to bust this myth. But on the other hand, it's really kind of fun to bust myths like that. So that was one of the things I really enjoyed is going through that early work and going through those timelines and, you know, trying to find out what's really going on with a lot of this. Um, in comparing Jim Henson and Dr. Seuss, uh, would, is there any kind of, like, through line you see for them and from a creative standpoint? Because to me... They seem like very different people and, and different they had very different processes from a from a creative standpoint, but having done such a deep dive on both of them, did you see any through line of how their creativity came to fruition or were they just completely different people who both happened to be wildly talented in your eyes? Well, great great question and you can even bring George Lucas into this as yeah. well. And because the one of the things they tend to have a common, and you're right, they all work in very different ways. They're all kind of very different personalities. Uh, but one of the things they all have in common is they are absolutely 100% committed to the work. Um, and, you know, don't suffer fools gladly when they're in the way of the work. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Jim, who everyone loved, could, could get that, you know, people would talk about that his, his mouth would get very tight. It would become a white line. You know, he didn't want, you know, he, he didn't want people messing. Um, and he was very into the creative process and, you know, getting it, getting it right and having fun when you're doing it, but, you know, was one of these people that was very committed to the work. And George Lucas was the same way, and to the extent that he, you know, if you don't give him what he needs, fine, he's going to build it himself. And um, Dr. Seuss is very much that way, and you can really see it, um, I think, in the beginner books phase when he's the editor of that imprint. And, you know, he's the one who's, you know, the one with the bestseller, and he's been writing books since 1937, 38, and he knows how this is done. And he really lays it on, um, you know, the Berenstains and Roy Mackay and, you know, a number of these other writers coming in and the artists and laying down the law. And this is how we're going to do this. And this is why this is important. And, you know, Mike, Mike Frith has this great quote about, you know, him, him really having to sit on people and how, you know, he knew best. But he really, and as Mike says, he really did know best. Um, so, you know, you've got these three people who are very driven when it comes to the work. And, you know, we'll, we'll listen to the best idea, and I think Jim was probably the better one at listening to the best idea mm-hmm. than either Lucas or Dr. Seuss. Um, but, you know, really committed to that work. And the other thing they all did is when it came to merchandising, um, their creations <laughs> yes. really held on to that and really were the quality check and didn't want anything getting out that they hadn't seen, held, touched, smelled themselves. All three of them did that as well, not wanting that merchandising to water down the work. I, a light bulb just went off when you said that. You're absolutely right. That's in all three of their stories that they wanted to kind of have that control over these these products that were going to go out there. And I feel like that has a lot to do with how integrated into society all of their stuff is. That is 
amazing that that's like the a, a main thing. I wonder if any of them took that away from anyone else and as like a nugget. That's really wow. I'm yeah, I'm, and, and you know, in Doctor Seuss, in Doctor Seuss in his lifetime, I mean, Mike first you know told this funny story about how just people would just were just tearing their hair out because they're like, there's so much money to be made <laughs> with Doctor Seuss merchandise, and he wouldn't and he wouldn't approve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, at one point they send him the mock up of the stuff, you know, cat in the hats that they're going to make, and he throws them in the swimming pool. He's just had it. Yep. Um, he has this big deal with uh, Coleco to do video games and things, and, and he, you know, it's like a, a huge deal. Uh, I want to say it's $7 million. It might not have been that much, but yeah. he finally just says, you know what, we're, we're, he, he does it for about a year, and he's like, this isn't worth it. This is just too much work for two little turns. Forget it, and he cancels the deal. Now, then Coleco went, oh, yeah, but, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, he was willing to walk away uh, when the quality wasn't there, which, again, is something that they all do. Um, but, again, in his lifetime, he didn't permit that much merchandise. That's one thing that his widow, um, Audrey, who just died very recently, right. um, really did, as you said, keeping keeping him in the public eye. I mean, she was the one who's like, let's, let's merchandise some things. Let's do it carefully, and let's try to be true to his vision. But, you know, started permitting more movies to be made and cartoons and more merchandise and mm-hmm. stuff, the animals and things, and really keeping him out there in in the in the culture uh after his death i mean she did a great job at that um, okay i have a series of questions here that's gonna let us nerd out a little bit i i don't normally do this with, okay. with people but this you feel like the exact right person to ask these types of questions for so first what's your favorite dr seuss book uh i probably bartholomew Cummins and the 500 hats okay I would go butter battle book. So. I, I don't think I don't I don't think it's his best one, but it's my favorite one. Okay. All right. Out of fairness, I will an- also answer these questions. So I'm gonna go butter battle book. Okay. But I will also. That's a good. Oh, good choice. Thank you. Um, favorite Seuss kind of piece of art or comic or thing that people might not know about. So something that's not one of his famous uh, children's books. <laughs> oh God, this one's easy. Uh, it was one of his very early books. It was the second book he did for under his contract with Random House. It is called The Seven Lady Godivas. Yeah. It is Dr. Seuss. Uh, he called it an adult book. It's not dirty, but mm-hmm. it's full of his version of naked women. All the, it's, it's, Under this book, the Lady Godiva was actually one of seven sisters together, mm-hmm. and they're all brilliant people. <laughs> and, and the book is full of him drawing, you know, naked women riding on horses and then there's a, a bunch of peeping toms and all these you know and tom is one of seven as well so they all have a match uh-huh. anyway if you can find seven lady godivas they have reissued it but it's one of those rarities in his career it was even it was one of the few books he even permitted to go out of print in his lifetime but it, it's actually it's a lot of fun it is not dirty at all but i'm sure by you know late 1930s early 1940s standards it was quite titillating and uh, you can see why it it didn't do very well, but look for Seven Lady Godivas. So I will say, I, when I said I, I'm a, a nerd before I started recording, I wasn't kidding. I actually own a copy of that. I also own um, the Secret Art. I believe it's the Secret Art of Seuss, and then I also have uh, Doctor Seuss Goes to War, and it's all of his. Uh, oh, very good. It, yeah, they're all really good. But yeah, that's incredible. I would go with. There's a um, a painting that he did. It's called A Prayer for a Child. That. Um, yeah, I think it's actually like you can find it all over the place now, but it's it's very Whovillian where it's like the it's the world in space and there's this little tiny house and what looks like a Christmas tree that you would see in the Grinch and it has this little uh this little poem. It's very, very, very pretty and I honestly think it's like sold out everywhere. I don't think people can do it anymore. But um 
Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna mix and match between George Lucas and Jim Henson and Dr. Seuss. So favorite Star Wars character? Uh, I'm always gonna be a Han Solo guy. I I was ten when well, I was actually nine when the first Star Wars came out. I fell in love with Han Solo and Millennium Falcon at nine, and I've been there ever since. Okay, I would go Lando, but I will put Han as that's a good one. Um, favorite... Lando, Lando was the figure none of us wanted to have to deal with. I I just he's... Lando was Lando was always the leftover figure. <laughs> well, I would have been good in your group of friends then. I would have taken him. <laughs> it was on Lando and for some reason 3PO nobody wanted like R2 people loved R2 but like nobody wanted 3PO either, oh, at least in my group C3, C3PO is going to be my other choice I, I love how he maybe, I, I although, agree the C3PO thing though might be me projecting because of the the mimicked character from Spaceballs I love uh, Dot a lot so <laughs> I might be projecting um, favorite Muppet movie my favorite Muppet movie is actually Muppet Take Manhattan um I think it's the funniest. It's the most character-driven. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see Muppets playing other characters. You know, it's like Kermit's not Kermit; he's somebody else. Mm-hmm. Movie. It's it's just it's a really. I think it's a lot of fun. It's sort of the sleeper among the three that came out in Jim's lifetime, but I think it's the funniest. So I'm gonna cheat and say Emmett Otter. Um, hey, that's the one that that's gets TV. Come on, you stinker! Ah, but it's like a TV movie. It's you know, if I, if I'm forced to make a, a movie decision, I would probably say Muppet Treasure Island because I love Tim Curry so much. Um, right. But over the years, I've gotten to talk to Brad Meltzer a few times, and we always end up talking about Emmett Otter. He's been on the podcast several times, and it always ends up going back to Emmett yeah. Otter. So I, I think that's what I... Brad is, Brad is super cool, and I love Emmett as well, but uh, I, I didn't answer that because I don't consider that a movie, you stinker. All right, okay, okay. All right, uh, favorite Muppet in general, then, character? Uh, Rolf. And uh, I've talked about this on Twitter before, but when I first started the project, I was like an Ernie guy and Grover. Because uh-huh. um, I'm Sesame Street, I'm Sesame Street Generation 1.0. <laughs> um, so I was always a big fan of the Sesame Muppets. But the more after I got done with Jim Henson, I am a 1,000% Rolf man. I just think that's a fantastic character. Uh, when you know his history, I think it makes him even more interesting. He was the first sort of nationally famous Muppet, uh-huh. uh, and I actually think he's—I think he's actually closer to Jim's personality than even Kermit is. He's, he's sort of the, you know, the rocking chair, somewhat sarcastic sage who's you know <laughs> going to give you the smart commentary and be kind of funny, but very homesome. I think that's very Jim. I that one we agree on. I, I agree with Ralph. That is absolutely the correct answer. Um, best Star Wars movie. You know, I think um, if I have to go between best and favorite, there's a difference. Uh, my favorite is still the original Star Wars, but I think the best is Empire Strikes Back. Okay. I was going to say Empire, but I was, I was curious what you were going to say. Um, this one's very, very important. Labyrinth or Dark Crystal? Uh, um, I think probably I'd give the edge to Labyrinth. Okay. So... Um, I have made my wife watch both of them. We both love David Bowie, but she had never seen Dark Crystal, and she bought it on Blu-ray for me as a surprise when I was having a horrible day. And I grew up watching these movies. I'm the youngest of four, and I'm 33, so like my, my oldest siblings were having me watch these things, which is why I love all of them so much. But <laughs> she sat down and watched the Dark Crystal with me, and she looked at me, and she's like, Adam, I love you. I have no idea what's going on right now. I was like, yeah, there's... 
there's some things going on in Dark Crystal that you really gotta pay attention. But I, if come to my head, I would probably go Labyrinth as well. If nothing else, because Hoggle is just a great character. Yeah, my, I'll, I'll have you know, my my wife and your wife would probably have left the room together. My <laughs> wife was not a big fan of Dark Crystal either. Um, Labyrinth is one of the yeah, and I saw actually both of those in the theater when they came out. Oh wow! And I I saw I saw Labyrinth very close to like the week it came out, and I remembered walking out of there kind of going, I'm not sure what that was. <laughs> um, it was you know it was it, it's I told poorly to him, and I just kept telling around like you know I was part of your problem. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> Because at that age, I, I walked down. I'm like, was it music video? Is it supposed to be fun? Like, mm-hmm. I just it, it it went right past me. Yeah. And it's one of those that it, over time, like I have come to really get and really appreciate and yeah. and really admire. Um, what I think is really interesting about it is so you know you're 17 years younger than I am, mm-hmm. and but when I talk about Jim in public, people from probably your age down through college age right now. When I put that labyrinth slide up on the wall, the place goes oh, yeah. nuts. Yeah. People love labyrinths. That is the one. And what I always say about labyrinth is Jim was absolutely right about it, but at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I. it definitely has. Yeah, people just love that. People love that movie. Yeah. I, I think he'd be so happy that it's like found its audience. Listen, the amount of people in our office who have like either labyrinth Funkos at their desk, or somebody has an entire twelve-month calendar of labyrinth characters. Like, there's so much of it around. You're absolutely, and our our office does tend to skew like a little bit younger. So that's absolutely true. Um, okay, the last one of these. What was your favorite Muppets show guest star? Oh God, that one is so hard because uh, as my brother often says about film, I could say my favorite Muppet, my top ten Muppet show list have thirty Muppet shows. On yeah, them. I know. Um, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm going to be that guy on this and I'm going to give you two different answers on this because one of them that I love is the Star Wars one. Uh I mean, it's one that's kind of, again, right, right in the wheelhouse (laughs) and Mark Hamill is so funny on there. And this was at a time you have to remember when there was no Star Wars anywhere. Mm -hmm. So getting to see R2 on the Muppet show and three go, even three go dancing, which is fantastic, Mm -hmm. uh, was just, I mean, like a perfect storm. Uh, but having said that, I think if I had to pick my absolute favorite Muppet show of all time, it's still the Steve Martin episode. Yes, where, this, where they send all they send everyone home and they cancel the show, and so he, he just does the whole thing for the Muppets. Yeah, and, and what I love about it is it's one of the few times they sort of like turn down the laugh track because when he's performing, that's actually the Muppet performers you hear cracking up uh-huh. while he's up there doing his thing. It's just. It's so raw and so great. I mean, it just they must have just had an absolute blast that week. When he does the balloon sketch, and I know I feel like at this point I've narrowed down the amount of people that care about this part of our conversation to like you and I and three other people that will listen, but I don't care. When he does <laughs> when he does his like balloon balloon animal sketch in front of them, it is still <laughs> like one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I love it so much. And you can and you can totally hear them all laughing at. That's what I love. I mean, they are just dying. I just, I think it's just such a great such a great moment, even on the show. Yeah, we. I will say we are. I think of the same ilk because I was going to say Steve Martin or Vincent Price, <laughs> just because the Vincent Price one has all of the uh, a lot of the ske- the sketches and everything they did were very much tailored to to him, and I, I enjoyed that very well. Um, Oh, and, and again, since I'm going to be now allowed to warm out of that, I'm going to talk about two others that I absolutely love. Yeah. I think one of them, I think Gilda, I think Gilda Radner mm-hmm. is one of the performers that really got it. 
and like just is the perfect um, performer to interact with the Muppets. Her episode is just fantastic. It is funny from start to finish. I mean, dancing with the seven foot carrot, how great is that? Um, <laughs> And doing doing Gilbert and Sullivan even so funny. And the other one that I really like because it's just so nuts is um, the Alice Cooper episode. Yeah. It's insane. Oh yeah, he's. I mean, he was right up there, alley as well. Like as a person that like you said, like a, a care a figure who kind of understood what they were trying to do and, and appreciated it. That is an inc- that's a really good answer too. Yeah. And that's, again, where you get, where you really come to appreciate the genius of Jim and his team there, like his head writer, Jerry Jones, someone who, like, were willing to, like, bring these people in and was like, hey, look, we want to play to your strengths, and if you want to do something nuts, that's fine. And, I mean, where else are you going to see Beverly Sills bouncing a spoon on her nose, you know, or, or, or Sylvester Stallone singing to a lion, you know, I mean, it's, it's just crazy. It's, it's so brilliantly done. Um, that's one of the things that, when they talk about relaunching them up the show now, I wish variety shows were still kind of in vogue. Yeah. Maybe they could make it happen again, but because it, it is sort of the perfect ideal setting because you can do quick, you know, three or five minute bits and then get out. Yeah, you don't, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to sustain an entire plot. Oh man, um, I feel like I could keep you forever, but I know that you do have a deadline. So just, I have one more question that we always ask people as as we're kind of leaving the show. But what do you hope readers sure. take away from becoming Doctor Seuss? Um, I think one of the things I, I really want people to uh, appreciate, um, a couple things. But first of all, um, you know, I, I understand and sympathize some of the concerns people have about uh, the way some of his art looked back in the very early days. And I hope people will um, look at that um, through, you know, the eyes of the time, but also watch him kind of evolve over time. And, uh, and again, you know, there, there may be disagreement on this one, and I, I'm great with that. Um, I think it's good for the conversation, but just watch, watch him over time. Uh, you can see him changing, and then I think almost visibly pivot once he gets into World War II. Uh, I think there's a lot going on with him as he sort of, you know, becomes the true progressive. And he was he he was always a, a lifelong Democrat. He has those great stories about sort of quarreling with his father, who is a lifelong <laughs> Republican in Massachusetts. And he, he tells a great story about going to register to vote in California and reporting as a Democrat. And they asked him if he was sure he was in the right place. And so, <laughs> but um, so so I hope that's one thing people will look at is kind of watch him with a with a different eye, watch him kind of evolving as he goes through this. Um, but second, I think just again, watch how he does evolve. Watch how he becomes Dr. Seuss. I mean, this is this is a guy who lived a long time and did a lot of things in his life that were all very different. And if you're one of these people who's you know who, who thinks it's you're too old to start something, think again and go back and look at his career. Um, and you know, again, he's he's been writing kids' books up into his fifties and hasn't really had a hit. And you know, was still working. A, you know, a day job, mm-hmm. um, and hoping at some point he's going to be able to, you know, do this full time. But even Dr. Seuss had a day job up until he was 50 years old. So, you know, I think that I hope that's one of the things people will come to appreciate with him as well. How hard this guy is working at this, how this guy was very driven about it, very serious about it, very committed to it, and really trying to make it work um, so he could, you know, he could do it full time. And once he does get to do it full time, that's when we really start seeing the Dr. Seuss we all know. That's when we start seeing the one who's doing Green Eggs and Ham and is doing the Lorax and is doing the Butter Battle book and doing Your Only Old Ones and all these books that have sort of become almost iconic nowadays are books that could really only happen once Dr. Seuss can be Dr. Seuss full-time. 
Brian, I've been waiting to have this conversation since the moment I saw the book was announced and it was more than I could have ever imagined. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Adam, it's been great, and I'm happy to come back again, and we can nerd out over Star Wars and Muppets again. I love it. It's, it's as I would say, it's it's the best uh, jobs I could possibly have. I get to, you know, I get to talk Muppets, and I get to watch Sesame Street and call it work. I mean, how, what what better job is that? Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.